Let's pray as we begin. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray now, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, we introduced a way to approach the Psalms, which involves reading a given Psalm, whatever the Psalm is, from three different angles. The original context angle, the New Testament angle, and the us who live in the 21st century angle. That's one way, and I think one fruitful way, for us to read any particular psalm that we have. It, it can make our reading uh, much more rich and more meaningful. Well, this morning we are immersing ourselves in Psalm 24. And we want to try out that same uh, threefold approach as we read this particular psalm. So as we've done uh, in the past two weeks now, let's just begin here by reading the psalm in its entirety together. And then we'll go back as we did last week, and we'll approach it from each of those three angles. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory, Selah. Now, maybe the best place for us to start as we look at Psalm 24 is to just note that the psalm has a basic structure about it. It has three parts. The first part is verses 1 and 2, which focus on the creative power and the authority of God. The second part is verses three through six, which focus on protocol, if we would approach this holy authoritative God. And then the third and final part of the Psalm is verses seven through 10, which focus on the glory of God, the glory of God and his entrance or the ark's entrance into the gates of Jerusalem. Now, there are commentators out there who think that the three parts of this psalm are largely unrelated. 
that the three parts have sort of been uh, stitched together sort of haphazardly so that now they make up a single psalm. But in, in the end, these commentators say the three parts really don't have uh, much to do with one another. Well, I disagree with that assessment. I think there is a single um, overarching setting or situation uh, for the psalm that makes sense of all three of the parts, that, that binds all three of the parts together. And that setting or that situation is this. The Israelites have just won a victory in battle with the Canaanites, and now they are returning from the battle with the Ark of God, coming into their city, and they're making their way to the sanctuary. I think that's the basic setting or the original context of Psalm 24. One more time, the Israelites have just won a victory in battle with the Canaanites at, or over the Canaanites, and now they are returning from the battle with the Ark of God, and they're coming back into their city, back making their way to the sanctuary. Well, let's see how this setting helps us grasp each of the three sections of the psalm. Again, the first section is verses 1 and 2, which focus on the creative power and the authority of our God. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We're talking here about the original context of the psalm, and we're arguing that Israel has just won a battle against this other people group, the Canaanites. Verses 1 and 2 seem to be Israel's celebration of Yahweh's sovereign power over not only Israel, but also over Canaan. Yahweh is God of all the earth. Yahweh created the Canaanites just as much as he created the Israelites. And now God has shown his authority. He has shown his sovereignty over the Canaanites in this battle. And then we come to verse 2. And here we have strong and really undeniable clues that prove to us that this first section of the psalm is about Israel's victory over the Canaanites. Now listen, just before we look at verse 2, what the biblical authors liked to do from time to time is to engage in what we call polemical theology. Polemical theology. What does that mean? Well, it means this that these Hebrew authors, the biblical authors, would go ahead and they would borrow terms and they'd borrow stories and they'd borrow idioms from other ancient Near Eastern cultures that lived close to them. And they would turn those idioms and terms and stories upside down by using them to describe Yahweh the one God of Israel. What we often see is the biblical authors 
stripping those terms, those idioms, those stories, stripping them of the mythological values that they held in those other ancient cultures. Now, the biblical authors would use those stories, idioms, and terms in connection with the true God, Yahweh. And this was a way for Israel to taunt the gods of those other cultures, to make the pagan gods of those other cultures look pathetic and look weak. Well, let's see this in action now in verse 2 of our psalm where we have some of this polemical theology going on. Uh, The polemical theology in this case, again, it's directed at the Canaanites who have just been defeated in battle by the Israelites. Now, as English readers of Psalm 24 verse 2, probably we find this verse a little baffling when we really uh, start to think about it because it says here that God founded the earth and established the earth on something relatively unstable, which is water. He founded it. He founded the earth upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Well, this sort of makes us sort of scratch our heads a little bit here. Water does not seem like a good choice of material on which to establish foundations. So we kind of scratch our heads, but, but here's what I think is going on in this verse. Listen, again, the Hebrew writer of this verse, David, is engaging here in some polemical theology against the Canaanites What we have in the original Hebrew of this verse are two words that David purposely embeds into the text, which are actually two alternate names for the same Canaanite God. Two alternate names for the same Canaanite God. So the word translated seas here is the word yam. Yom was the name of a Canaanite water god. And the word rivers in this verse is the word Nahar. And the alternate name for Yom, the Canaanite water god, was Judge Nahar. So David uses two words in this verse, two Hebrew words that were both names for the same Canaanite water god. Yom Uh, Judge Nahar. All right. So as you read this verse now, can you see what David is doing here? What he's doing is, and he's doing this on the heels of Israel's victory over Canaan, what he's doing is he's taunting the Canaanite myth about Yom, the sea god, the god of the sea. David is saying here, that Israel's God, Yahweh, he founded the earth on top of Yom. He founded the earth on top of Nahar. Yahweh has power over Yom and Nahar. Yahweh has control over Yom and Nahar. Yahweh can do what he wants with the Yom and the Nahar. He is sovereign over 
Yom, and Nahar. So it definitely appears here in this verse that victorious King David, he's just won this battle with his people, he's sort of thumbing his nose at the Canaanite gods. Yahweh is far superior to Yom, and Yahweh is to be praised here. Again, we're arguing that the original setting of this psalm is this, that the Israelites have just won a victory in battle over the Canaanites, and now they're returning from that battle with the Ark of God back into their city, making their way to the sanctuary. Well, when we come to the second uh, section of the psalm, which is verses 3 through 6, the focus now switches. It switches to the necessary protocol. Should the Israelites want to approach this holy authoritative God who has defeated the Canaanites? Protocol. The Israelites understand here, I want you to listen, that God cannot be approached nonchalantly or flippantly. There are protocols to abide by if one would approach this holy, authoritative God who has just won the battle. We can imagine verse 3 being asked here by the priests as victorious Israel continues their pilgrimage from the battleground where they've just been to the city. The priests with the army put the question to the people, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? Or who shall go up Mount Zion? And who shall stand in his holy place? I love the way Daniel Block summarizes verse 3. He says, in essence, the question that's being asked here in the verse is, whose worship is acceptable to God? Again, the question, whose worship is acceptable to God? And then in verse 4, What we notice is that the answer to that question is not whoever wants to can come to God just as they are. Notice this very carefully here. Notice that there are four prerequisites, four protocols if Israel would approach God in worship. Israel had to approach God on his terms, not on their own terms just as is the case today with us when we come to worship. We have to approach God on his terms. Whose worship is acceptable to God? The psalmist says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now let's walk through this a little bit. Clean hands are about actions and deeds righteous actions and deeds. So clean hands is about external righteousness, if we want to say that. But pure heart is about inner righteousness, inner holiness. God requires both clean hands and a pure heart. Israel could not divorce external righteousness from internal righteousness. It was a both-and thing if they would approach God. Clean hands and a pure heart. 
And further, a person could only approach God if that person did not lift up his or her soul to what is false. Now, to lift up one's soul to what is false is to lift up one's whole self. To commit one's whole self to what is empty, to what is void. And the word translated false here is sometimes used in scripture to describe idols. Idols are empty things. They are false things. They are void things. A person must not commit himself or herself to idols if he or she wanted to approach Yahweh. Nor could a person swear deceitfully, as it says in the verse, If she wanted to approach Yahweh in worship, she could not uh, swear deceitfully. The idea here is that there has to be an an integrity of speech as well uh, if one would approach Yahweh in worship. Well, on the face of it, with all these stipulations in place for approaching Yahweh in worship, nobody would qualify. Who could say that their hands were always clean and their heart was always pure and they always had integrity of speech and they had no trace of idolatry in their life. No one could claim all that. And so what I think this points to is the fact that God had provided the blood of an animal to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Only by that provision and through that provision of atoning sacrificial blood could Israel dare to approach God in worship. By themselves, they could not meet uh, the standards of holiness that God had put in place. But God provided a way for them to have their sin covered as they approached him in worship. Now, verses 5 and 6, we won't spend as much time on for now. Verse 5, he will receive, this is describing now the person uh, described in verse 4, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, just notice here briefly in this verse that the forgiven people are in a receiving position, right? A receiving position. They receive blessing from Yahweh um, and righteousness from Yahweh. And then verse six, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then finally, in our look here at the original context of Psalm 24, we come to the last section, which is verses seven through 10. Again, we said at the beginning, that these last four verses of the psalm focus on the glory of God and his entrance, the ark's entrance into the gates of Jerusalem. The people of Israel are returning in victory from their battle with the Canaanites. So far, they have marveled at God's sovereign authority over all of the earth in verses one and two, and they've taunted the Canaanites a little bit, as we saw in verse two. And they have discussed protocol for approaching this great God who has given given them this victory. Now, in verses 7 through 10, they are about to enter through the gates with the ark of God. We remember 
that God had chosen to make a home in between the wings of the cherubim on the ark. In verse 7, notice this, the doors and gates themselves are addressed. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now, Alan Ross, in his commentary, he makes the suggestion here, and I quite like it. He makes the suggestion that perhaps the words gates and doors in this verse are stand-ins for gatekeepers and door keepers. So in other words, in actual fact, it's people with gatekeeping roles who are being addressed here. Ross says, in the same way that you and I today might say, the courts have spoken, by which we mean not the actual physical courtrooms themselves have spoken, but rather the people who preside over the courts have spoken. So here in our verse, gates means people who preside at the gates. The gatekeepers are to lift their heads out of their worry. They're to lift their spirits up if they had been worried about the outcome of the battle. Because now, triumphant Israel and triumphant Yahweh, God of Israel, are returning victorious from the battle. This was no time to be downcast. This was rather a time to celebrate. Now, what we notice in verses 7 through 10, it's important to notice this, five times in these four verses we have the phrase, King of Glory. And three times we have the name Yahweh, which is translated in English as the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So these verses then are very much centered on God, on the King of Glory, on his splendor and on his kingship. And what we also notice is that these four verses are given in a call and response format. So in verse 7, the returning army addresses the gatekeepers. As we've said, they, they want the gatekeepers to lift their heads that the king of glory may come in. And then in verse 8, the gatekeepers respond with the question, who is this king of glory? To which the army responds, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. That's the identity of the king of glory. He is Yahweh, the warrior. In verse 10, the gatekeepers again pose the same question. Who is this king of glory? And the army then gives their final response in that verse, Yahweh of armies or Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. Now, of course, the gatekeepers know perfectly well who the king of glory is, even as they ask their question, who is this king of glory? We need to understand that their repeated question here, who is this king of glory? This is not a question that seeks to identify this king of glory because they're in a position of ignorance. Rather, the reason that they pose the question twice 
is to give the army an opportunity or to give the priests of the army an opportunity to respond in increasing delight and praise and worship concerning the attributes of their God. Everybody knew who Yahweh was, and it was an opportunity for them to just praise God here. So this question, who is this king of glory? This is a platform, as it were, a platform for a sort of crescendo of praise to happen. And that's how the psalm ends with this high point of praise as Yahweh and his people return to Jerusalem after their victory. Well, of course, uh, there's much more that we could say about the original context of Psalm 24, but we we, we need now to move to our second reading, which is to read the Psalm now with New Testament, with New Testament lenses on. As we've already said, The first section of Psalm 24 is about the creative power, the creative authority of God. This first section of the Psalm focuses on God's ownership of the entire earth. And his ownership of the entire earth, of course, is a natural outcome of the fact that he created the earth, that he established the earth. Well, in the New Testament, in John 1 verse 2, we're told there that all things were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the, is the Lord who is described in Psalm 24 verses 1 and 2. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, that God created the world through Jesus. He created the world through Jesus. And Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 tell us that all things were created by Jesus, that all things are through him and all things are for him, and that in him all things hold together. Well, with those New Testament passages in mind, I think we can legitimately read the first two verses of our psalm as the earth belongs to Jesus and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. And then we've also said in general terms that Psalm 24 is about the victorious king who has secured the victory for his people over the Canaanites. Well, It's Jesus who is the victorious king. Jesus who has won the battle for his people, not so much over the Canaanites, but over sin, death, and hell. It's Jesus ultimately who is celebrated in Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? Well, it's Jesus. It's King Jesus. In fact, in both 1 Corinthians 2.8, And again, in James 2, verse 1, Jesus is called the Lord of glory. Were Paul and James thinking of Psalm 24 and King of glory when they called Jesus Lord of glory in those two places? Perhaps they were. Jesus is the great king who is mighty in battle and who is strong and mighty, as it says in verse 8. 
And listen, friends, here's the good news for us that comes out of Psalm 24. Remember when we were looking at verses 3 and 4, and we were saying that really nobody fits the description of verse 4. Nobody fills the bill. Nobody is worthy on their own to come into the presence of God for worship. Well, the good news for the believer in Jesus Christ is that the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us. Say amen from wherever you're seated. Amen. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who ascends God's holy hill. He is the one who can stand in God's holy place. He is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart flawlessly he has those things and he is the one who never ever lifts up his self his soul to emptiness or vanity he is the one who has never sworn deceitfully because no deceit is found in his mouth and it's the righteousness of this king this king whose blood cleanses us from all sin. It's the righteousness of this true Israel named Jesus that is ours when we are converted so that we can enter then, we can enter God's presence having the righteousness of Christ, the king of glory. See, my hands and my heart will never be clean enough Never be pure enough if I'm left to myself. My mouth is not fail-safed against speaking deceitfully. My soul can so easily veer into what is empty, into what is hollow, hollow pursuits, false pursuits, empty pursuits. I need the righteousness of another if I would approach the holy authoritative, fearsome God of Psalm 24. And God in his grace, God in his love, God in his unfathomable mercy gives me the righteousness of Jesus, the King of glory. And he gives us the spirit so that we can become people who act with clean hands. Well, in our psalm, in both uh, verse 7 and again in verse 9, the people of Israel ask that the king be allowed entrance into Jerusalem. Well, the king of glory entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday riding a donkey. But the people didn't recognize him as the king of glory. They executed him. Only five days later. But that execution served to fulfill the promise of verse 5 in our psalm. Through the cross, God did what? He brought blessing and the righteousness of the God of salvation. And then the king of glory rose from the dead. Hallelujah. He rose from the dead and he ascended into the gates of heaven. Into the heavenly sanctuary victorious in battle, victorious over sin, death, and the devil, the king of glory reigns at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back for us. Glory to the king of glory. 
Well, this is the New Testament reading of Psalm 24. And then finally, we have the third reading of Psalm 24, the us reading. How do we pray Psalm 24 today? How do we read it in connection with our lives in 2020? Well, one thing that we might say concerning the first two verses of the psalm is this. Recognize your bearings as a small, weak, dependent creature in the world. I want to say that again. Recognize your bearings as a small, weak, dependent creature in the world. What do you and I actually own in this world? Nothing, ultimately. Charles Spurgeon said that you and I and the next guy are only tenants in God's world. We are merely tenants. Look again at verse 1. We are the those who dwell of verse 1. And God owns those who dwell on the earth. You and I have an owner and his name is God. So let's make sure as we pray this verse to let it humble us as we're praying it back to God. Let it help us come to grips with our actual station, our, ex our actual position in life. And may these verses cause us to recognize the sheer majesty, the, uh, the, the gargantuan greatness of God and how much we depend on him for everything. The earth and everything in it is God's. My two dogs at home belong to God. The wood on this pulpit belongs to God. Daniel behind the camera and the camera itself belong to God. The computer or phone or iPad or whatever it is you're watching on right now, those things belong to God. I belong to God. You belong to God. Every Himalayan black bear or Himalayan brown bear belongs to God. And every sailfish belongs to God. Every oxygen molecule belongs to God. Every building, every car, every document, every waterfall, every stadium on this planet belongs to God. Every juniper berry, every ocean, every city, including the city of Montreal, belongs to God. These verses can help us if, I think, if we have too high an opinion of ourselves, they can help put the focus on the greatness of God again. And these verses, these first two verses can also comfort us greatly, can't they? Knowing that our good and great God who owns everything has unlimited resources and can give us unlimited provision. And then secondly, when we get to verses three through six, perhaps an inference uh, that, that we can make here, after we've rejoiced in the fact that Christ's righteousness makes us acceptable to God, an inference we can draw is that like Israel, we need to approach God on his terms. We said that earlier. We need to approach him on his terms and not on our own terms. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, quote, we must not assume 
that we can go waltzing nonchalantly into the presence of the great king. Close quote. These verses can help us prepare for worship. Uh, They can help us to have more reverence for the king, to have more healthy trembling as we come before him, as we come to worship him. With the promise of verse 5 in mind that this king that we're coming and trembling before is going to give us blessing. Amen. And then with the third section of the psalm in mind, uh, with verses 7 through 10 in mind, we can be confident that our God is a warrior. He's a warrior who is for us, for his people. God is strong and mighty for us when we are at work. He is strong and mighty for us when we're in the marketplace. When we are out on the battlefield, so to speak, God is strong and mighty for us. The Lord Jesus is mighty in battle on behalf of his people. We need not fear. We need not default to a sort of downcast attitude. We put our hope in the Lord who is strong in battle and mighty in war. Well, there we have it, friends. Three readings of Psalm 24, all um, interrelated, interconnected. I trust that the Lord has been speaking to you by his word this morning as we ventured through this. May he bring Psalm 24 to your remembrance this week in whatever you face. Praise the King of glory forevermore. Amen.